All right, if you can start making your way back to your seats. All right, if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn. Oh, there it goes. Um, if you got your Bible, go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9. So it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in its hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again, we thank you for uh, this day. God, we thank you for a chance to open your word and to um, see uh, the the beauty and, um, God, the clarity of your gospel, even in um, the Old Testament. Um, God, we ask that you would bless uh, your, as, as we as we look into your word, God, that you would bless our time in it. Um, God, that you would open our, our hearts and our eyes and our mind to um, the truths that we find here, God, that we would know them and believe them, that they would be impressed upon our hearts, uh, God, and that you would use your word um, to sanctify your people and form us in the image of Jesus Christ. God, we we continue, um, as we often do, to ask you that you would bring revival, God, in our own hearts, in our own families, in our own congregation, among the churches of God, in our community, um, and God across uh, our country and across the world. Um, we ask that in our own lifetimes, you would bring a new um, uh, uh, movement uh, of the Holy Spirit, um, that he would awaken hearts and have them turn to Jesus Christ. God, that we would be able to be um, tools of that, that you would use us in that endeavor to to awaken hearts uh, and and share the good news of Jesus Christ. God, we pray for the churches um, of Blunt County that um, each week um, are, are preaching your word and are telling people um, the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, God, this week in particular, uh, 
Uh, we pray for Beach Grove Baptist Church. Um, God, we pray for their new uh, pastor, Matt Dixon, as he is is um, stepping into the lead pastor position there as he is beginning um, his preaching ministry there. God, we ask that you would use him and that as he uh, preaches faithfully from your word, God, we ask that you would give that congregation and the community around their church ears to hear, um, that you would use um, that church, um, God, to draw people to yourself. Um, We ask that for all the churches in Blount County. Um, who preach the gospel each, each week. We ask that for our own church, um, and we trust that you are working in those places. Father, we love you. We praise you. We ask that as we open your word, um, you would shine a light on it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so what I wanted to do tonight is kind of talk about something that we have talked about before, um, sort of as a function of the fact that it's our anniversary, um, um, looking back to sort of foundational ideas of for our congregation and, and, and the way we understand things and the way we believe. And, and I want to start off with sort of this idea of the gospel being the center of everything that we do. Um, the gospel is the center, and we're going to sort of look at this throughout tonight, is the center of our worship service each week in a particular way. Some of you are probably familiar with an author named Stephen Covey. Um, he is the guy who wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and he has this little phrase in there that has sort of um, gotten popular. It's just sort of this little colloquial thing, and he says, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Right. You've probably heard people sort of regurgitate that phrase. That is how we feel about the gospel. Okay. The gospel is the main thing and it is our main thing to keep the main thing, the main thing in our church, in our service, in our worship, in our lives, in the message that we are telling to the world and in everything that we do. And so we're going to sort of review the gospel message as a function of the liturgy of our own service. And so you might say liturgy is sort of a fancy religious word, but essentially all it means is the the form or the order of our of our service, right? Um, every church has a liturgy, even churches that don't realize they have a liturgy. Every church has an order of their service, a way they do things. It's, it's actually a cool little word because the word liturgy actually means the work of the people. Um, The word liturgy, the the idea there is that the service of worship that we are a part of is you guys, us, serving the Lord, right? We are doing something together um, and working together to to offer something um, to the Lord. And so we offer that thing, that worship, in a certain shape, you could say. And the shape that we use every single week for our worship is the gospel itself. And we use, you may have noticed if you've, if you've been a part of our church for, for any amount of time or, or paid attention, you may have noticed it, but you may have not known what it was about. If you look on your bulletin and as you go through our service, you see these little notations every once in a while off to the right, um, sort of right aligned instead of left aligned. Um, there's one right there under the welcome. It says, I saw the Lord uh, on a throne, lofty and exalted, right? That's Isaiah 6.1. We just read that passage. You'll notice that as we go throughout our service, there are other notations like that. And there are every week because we actually use Isaiah 6, the passage that I just read, as the gospel-shaped passage 
of all of our worship. And I'm going to show you and kind of walk through why and how um, we do that because it creates a framework for us so that each week we are worshiping in a gospel-shaped way. We're trying to keep the gospel the main thing, even in the in the shape of our service. And hopefully it trains our hearts to think about every aspect of life in terms of a gospel-shaped life, okay? So let's begin at the beginning. It says in verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, so King Uzziah was a king of the of the southern um, kingdom of, of Judah. Um, uh, if, if you know your Old Testament history, right, after the King Solomon uh, dies, the kingdom of Israel is broken into two pieces, the northern ten tribes uh, and the southern two tribes. The northern tribes are called Israel collectively. The southern tribes are called Judah collectively. And this is in the year 733 BC. And so obviously there's, there's all kinds of things that we could dig into into the context of that. Um, but, but just sort of to give you a, a frame of reference, that's when Isaiah is preaching. And we begin the passage with this vision of the exalted glory and grandeur of God. Okay. And so what does it say? He says, in this year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah saw. He has a vision of God. And it says he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. All right. So essentially what happens is we are brought into this picture. We are getting insight into the vision of the throne room of God that Isaiah has seen. Okay. And throne rooms are, I mean, you can think of any movie that you've ever seen, right? Throne rooms are a symbol of, of authority, of power, of glory, of grandeur. If, if you go into different cultures and look at the, the, uh, I'm, I'm a Anglophile. I love English culture and the history of England and things like that. And when you look at the thought that is put into, English coronation ceremonies, right? The way, um, they, they, uh, inaugurate new kings and queens, you recognize there's all this symbolism and stuff that is very significant to make the king or queen look grand, exalted, sort of set apart from the people, okay? We're seeing a throne room scene of, of the king of the universe, of, of God himself. And so um, it, it has all this picture of the throne, of the train of his robe filling up the temple. And then maybe most importantly, you see this, in verse 2, there are these beings called seraphim, all right? The seraphim. It says each one had six wings. Two covered his face, two covered his feet, and with two he flew. So seraphim is a word that means the burning ones. And so these are angelic beings. Um, and if you get into, like, the way people have classified angels and tried to understand them more, they're, they're sort of this special category of angels. We don't get a full description of what they actually look like. We just hear about their six wings and that they're, um, that the positioning of those wings, which has some significance on our own, on its own, but we're not going to zoom in on the, that today. Um, but what we do know about them is they stand around the throne of God and maybe most significantly is what they are saying about who God is. They are pronouncing the glory of God eternally and at all times. Verse 3, it says, one was calling to the other. They are singing back and forth to each other in the throne room of God. And what are they saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth 
is full of his glory. And then it says in verse four that the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. Again, we see this angelic choir and this threefold holiness declared. You know, we all know that three is, is a perfect number in, in, in biblical terms, right? So it's a, it's a holy, holy, holy. It is a perfect holiness. Um, and it's depicting this awe-inspiring God of, of power and preeminence and glory. That's what we're seeing. And it's a cool little line there at the end where it says that the, the house was filled with smoke, right? We are getting this revelation of who God is. And yet at the same time, it is shrouded in, in mystery, you could say, right? We can't see everything that we would like to see. Um, but we know God is there and he is, he is preeminent and he is glorious. So we begin this passage with the transcendent glory of God. Um, we begin our service each week with the transcendent glory of God. So we call the congregation to worship each week. And typically what we do is we go to a psalm that either specifically calls us to worship or tells us something about God that would elicit worship in us, right? So you'll notice that oftentimes, usually when we read that call to worship passage, it's doing one of those two things. It's specifically saying, come worship the Lord, or how awesome is the Lord? Here are his characteristics, okay? And that is demonstrating to us the glory of God. Then what do we do? Marlon and the worship team come and we sing songs about the goodness and the glory of God. We sing songs about his character. We sing songs about what he has done. We sing songs about the work of Jesus Christ and how it has changed our lives, okay? We lift his name up and exalt him in the songs that we sing. And then what do we do? We go to these creedal, uh, confessional, covenantal affirmations. We say, this is what we believe this God is like. This is how we believe that he acts. This is what we believe that he does, okay? All of these things are pointing back to that central idea. The placement in our service and the placement you could say in the gospel message is central. We are saying that a first beginning importance is the glory and the preeminence of God, okay? That is unquestionable. That is the beginning of any of our worship. It is the beginning of anything that we could do, say or do in the context of the way reality is. I mean, it's, it's the fundamental principle is the glory of God. Some people sometimes try to, to, that there are traditions in the church that have said, no, 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 the beginning of your first step is you're going into worship ought to be confession. Because if we're going to come into the presence of God, we should first confess our sin before him. That's the appropriate way to start. And I would say that is a nice sentiment, but I think it's, it's, it's not right. Because the reality is this, regardless of our sin, God is still glorious. Regardless of our sin, he is still preeminent, okay? We begin with the preeminence of God because it is foundational. It's ultimate reality. Regardless of anything else, God is glorious, and so we acknowledge that at the beginning of our service. And Isaiah, it's the first thing that he recognizes, right? He starts off going, I saw God high and lifted up. And the angels were saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Okay, that's where we begin. But we notice it immediately something happens. Because as he acknowledges the glory of God, it naturally leads to an expression 
of our own repentance and contrition, or it should. And that's what we see in the next verse, verse five. Because what is Isaiah's response to the glory of God? This is a cool little idea, folks. Okay. Um, a lot of times we think, man, I would, it would be so cool if I got to see God, if God would open up the heavens and I could just get a glimpse of him, man, I'd be so happy and I'd be having this little party and I'd do a little dance and it would be so great. But that's not what happens to Isaiah. When Isaiah sees the glory of God and sees God exalted, what does he say? He says, woe is me for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is struck in the moment that he sees this vision of God. Whereas, if you go back and look at the book of Isaiah, the first five chapters are basically Isaiah saying, Hey, nation of Israel, you guys need to clean up your act because you're acting in very sinful ways. Okay, you need to stop doing these sinful things that you're doing. And then when Isaiah sees the vision of God, his tone changes and he goes, no, 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 wait, not just you guys need to clean up your act. I need to clean up my, I am in the same boat you guys are in. I am ruined. My self-righteousness or even righteousness, I recognize now as I'm looking at God, it was paltry, right? It was only a comparative righteousness. If I thought I had a place to tell other people to turn from their sin as if I was above them in my righteousness, man, now I realize that was only because I was comparing myself to, to the wrong standard. When I compare myself to the transcendent glory of God, I'm ruined. Woe on me, okay? Woe. He pronounces woe on himself. And then he says, I am, different translations say it different ways. I am lost. I am ruined. I am doomed. I am undone. I am destroyed. That's his response to seeing the transcendent glory of God, right? He's wrecked by it. Again, we have a tendency to look at our own lives and think, man, I'm, I'm pretty decent, right? I'm certainly not that bad. I'm not perfect by any means, but I'm, I'm a pretty decent guy. And the reality is, is the only reason why we do that is because of our point of reference. Compared to Hitler, sure, I'm a saint, right? I'm a great dude. Compared to my jerky coworkers, or my loudmouth relatives, or compared to that person in my congregation who I think I am more faithful when it comes to different things, yeah, man, I'm doing pretty good. But the second we look at the perfect holiness of God, then that standard is crushed, right? As we look at the perfect beauty and moral perfection of God, we recognize that the chasm that separates our goodness from God is infinite, and unbridgeable is the key. There is no way I can get from here to him. It, it's, it's too far. And that's why he says, he, he realizes in that moment, and he says, I'm doomed. I'm ruined. I have no hope. I've seen what God is like, and I'm so unlike him, and the distance is so far, I am completely without hope. If I am supposed to be like God and live bearing his image and live in communion with him, then I recognize now that I will never, by any merit of my own being or goodness or love or, or obedience, I'll never make it. I'll never be able to bridge this gap. 
Isaiah is ruined. He's doomed. He's lost. In our sin, we are lost and without hope. If we just rest in the fact of who we are as sinners, there's nothing for us. And just like Isaiah, we should say the same thing. Or maybe like what we learned a few weeks ago in Luke. You remember when we were talking about the camel gate and that whole situation? And when they say it's harder for a rich man to go through the eye of the needle than a camel, or no, sorry, the camel to go through the eye of the needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And what do the disciples say? They say, well, then who can be saved? And what was the answer? The answer is, well, with man, this is impossible. Just like Isaiah realized, you can't get there from here. There's no possibility. But with God, nothing is impossible. And so we see in verse 6 that this weird thing happens. One of the seraphim, one of the burning ones, one of these angelic beings, it says, flew down to me. And having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. All right. So again, this weird thing, the altar of God is in this angelic vision. An angel takes a coal from it, touches Isaiah on the mouth, and then says, the sin that separated you, that made that gulf, right? The guilt that you bore is gone. It's been atoned for. The, br- the gap has been bridged. Okay. And he uses that specific word atoned for. That your sin has been atoned for. Atonement is one of those words that we throw around and it gets mixed together with other words in the Bible like redemption and salvation and justification. And they're all connected, but atonement has a specific meaning to it. Atonement is the idea of making payment for an injury or an offense. Specifically for us, that Jesus took the full punishment. He made the full payment that we deserved for our sins as a substitute in our place. Okay, That is what atonement is. The sin and the separation that we bear cannot simply be ignored by God. God can't do that. He can't just look at our sin and go, you know what, no big deal. Just I, I'll, let it, I'll let it slide, right? He can't just get over it because he's a God of justice. That sin has to be dealt with. And Isaiah realized that, right? His brokenness was not just a sense of his own personal guilt. It wasn't just a regret in the moment. It wasn't just him saying, oh, man, I'm not as good as I wanted to be or whatever. He realizes the complete inappropriateness of being in the presence of God as a sinner, right? He realizes his own uncleanness does not match up with someone who should be standing in the presence of God. The late uh, theologian preacher R.C. Sproul uh, makes a point, and he, and he comments about the greatest theological problem that, hum- that the human heart faces. Okay, And he says, most people, if you ask them what the biggest sort of apologetics kind of question is, is they would probably say it's, it's what's called the problem of evil. It's that question of, if God is good and all-powerful, then how come he lets sin exist? Okay? That's what most people would say. But R.C. Sproul says that is not the biggest question, theological question, that should be in our hearts. The biggest question that should be in our hearts is, how is it 
that a holy God has not annihilated every single person on earth out of his own justice and wrath? That's the main question. How is it that God has continued to let sinful mankind just go on sinning? That's the real question that we should ask. That's the beginning question at the heart of this. Our sin has to be paid for. We have to be cleansed from it. The toll that it has taken has to be rectified. Now, in this passage, because it's in the Old Testament, we are only getting a glimpse of the fulfillment, okay? The circumstances of that ultimate atonement, that ultimate paying for sin, are still veiled because this is in the Old Testament. But we do get some pictures of it, okay? We understand being New Testament Christians, we understand that sin is ultimately atoned for through the substitutionary death of Jesus. He dies our death. He pays our debts. His righteousness is imputed to us. Our sin is imputed to him. He makes us stand before God as righteous, and he bears the punishment of our sin. As it says in that passage, Through Jesus Christ, our guilt is taken away and our sin is atoned for, okay? That infinite gap between our sin and God's holiness is bridged by the sufficient payment of Jesus' own life and, and death on the cross. So in this passage, we get a glimpse of that, although we don't see the full picture of it but it is foreshadowing that that atoning action of Jesus Christ. And we get two aspects, I think, in particular. One, notice that the atonement comes from outside of Isaiah. That's the first thing to notice, okay? How does Isaiah atone for the sin? Not by anything he has done, all right? He didn't work hard. He didn't confess enough. He didn't pay some kind of wage. He didn't start living the right kind of life. Isaiah doesn't do anything. His sin is atoned for by an external action to him, okay? That's the first foreshadowing because we understand that our atonement is not because of anything that we've done. It comes to us through the actions of another, and that is Jesus, okay? And then secondly, notice that this coal that comes to cleanse his, his lips comes from the altar of God, right? The altar, a place of sacrifice, a place of offering, a a place of payment, okay? Again, giving us a picture, a foreshadowing, that the atonement is going to be a sacrificial atonement. It is going to be a costly atonement. There is going to be a payment that has to be made in some ways. So we get this picture of God's holiness, of our sin, of the atonement that God has provided in Jesus Christ, all right? Each week, and so we come down in our in our, in our our service. So if you look there on your bulletin, we come past the place where it says, woe is me for I am ruined, and we confess our sins. And then we come to this next section, and it says, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. And we do two things during that time. One, we read from the scriptures a passage that assures us that our salvation is not in our our own works, it is not by our own merit, but it is found in Jesus Christ alone, okay? So we go to the word of God and we are reminded of the truth 
that our salvation comes from outside ourselves and in Jesus Christ. And then what do we do? We go to the Lord's Supper table, right? And the Lord's Supper table is a picture of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. When we talk about the fact that the bread represents the body of Jesus Christ that is broken, when we talk about the juice representing the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed in our place, we see a picture of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's something unique that we do in our service, okay? Most traditions put the Lord's Supper at the end of the service. And and we don't know exactly why it has, throughout history, ended up at the end of the service, but, but most people think the reason is is basically because it was a practical, functional reason. It had to do with the fact that in the early church, there were two services, a Sunday morning service and a Sunday evening service. The Sunday morning service was the preaching service. The Sunday evening service was the what they called the love feast, the communal meal that the church would get together at. And oftentimes, that was where the Lord's Supper as the symbol was practiced. And so what did they do when they decided to bring those two services into one service? They just sort of stacked them on top of each other. Okay, That may not be exactly right, but that seems to be what the case is. But we change ours a little bit. We move the Lord's Supper right into the middle. Right? Why? Because we want it to tie in to the picture of the gospel. We want it to tie in to the atoning symbolism and reminder that before anything else, God is holy, we are sinful, and Jesus Christ alone has atoned for our sins. Okay? And so, again, some people worry. We do the Lord's Supper every single week. When you go out and ask other churches and you say, do you guys do the Lord's Supper every week? No, we don't. We do it once a month. We do it once a quarter. Well, why don't you do it every week? Well, if we did it every week, it just seems like it would be a little less special. Okay? That's I, I, 99% of the time, that's the answer that you will get from people. And here's the deal. It could be. We could get so used to it that we would forget what it meant. But I'm encouraging you to remember that. That as we come to the Lord's Supper table every week, that we are we are not just saying, cool, this is that thing we do every week. Okay, we are stopping to say Jesus Christ's body was broken for me. Jesus Christ's blood was shed for me. He is the reason that I'm here. My salvation is based on what he has already done. Okay, and so every week we are reminded of that in our service. Okay, and so um, we have to remember this. The church should always have the cross at the center what Jesus Christ has done for it. It is never old news to us. If, and this is sort of maybe an illustration, if the Christian life is an ascent to God, then what we realize is that the good news is, is that Jesus has descended to us. That his perfect life and death are the foundation on which we rest. That his life is the ladder. His merit is the ladder that we approach God with. That he is the strength for us to climb and to strive after the kingdom of God in our lives. And when we slip and fall, he is the safety harness that lets us know that even our sin, even our failures will not lead to our destruction. Okay? Jesus cross is the center of all that. Everything we will, everything we do is in the shadow of the cross. Okay? It is that central. Sometimes again, man, it's, it's the twin side of the resurrection, but every once in a while people will go, man, why are you, why are you focusing on the cross so much? All the, the sadness and the darkness and the death. Why don't you focus on the resurrection? The resurrection's where it's at. It's all happy and joyous and victorious. And the answer is we dare not do anything but focus on them both. 
Okay. We focus on the cross. We focus on the empty tomb. We have to hold those two things together at the same time. Now, on the basis of that atoning work, Isaiah has been cleansed. And then what happens in verse 8? All of a sudden, he hears the voice of God calling. Up until now, we've only heard the angels calling. But now God speaks. And it says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am. Send me. And he said, go and say to this people. God has made the way through the atonement. And now he says, who will answer my call? I have provided for the reconciliation of God and man. Now who will heed the call to go? On the basis of that atoning truth on the basis of that gospel we are called to a new life a new life of obedience a new life of mission jesus saves us from something to something from sin to righteousness from death to newness of life we said last week you can either live a chaff life a life of worthlessness that is blown away and good for nothing but the fire, or you can live a life of fruitfulness. God calls us to a life of fruitfulness. And again, we never confuse the order. The order, the liturgy, is all important, right? We don't start a service with, hey, what are you supposed to do? We don't begin there. You can't begin there, right? Because if you think you're supposed to do something first and then work your way into these other things, you're missing it. The order is critical. God is holy. You are a sinner. Jesus saves. Now do something. It's always God's grace that is the initiating power. And then faith and repentance come as an appropriate response to God's grace. And so as much as Isaiah is struck with the glory of God and then with his own sinfulness, now in humility and thankfulness, he is struck by the atoning grace of God. And so what does he do? He has to respond. When God says, who am I going to send? Immediately he says, I'll go. I'll be the one to go, God. In light of everything that you are, in light of everything that you've done, how could I do anything else but go and do whatever you want me to do? And notice the subtle observation that's really cool in this passage. What does God want him to do? What's what's, What's God asking of him? He says, who shall I send and who will go for me? Go where? Send to where? What is God asking? When Isaiah responds, he doesn't know yet. Because it doesn't really matter. No matter what God asks Isaiah to do, how can Isaiah refuse? In light of his glory and his grace, what can we do but hand over our lives to him? Our thoughts, our dreams, our ambitions, our identity, our being, it all belongs to him. And his glory alone would warrant that. The first point would warrant that. If we just saw God high and lifted up, we would say, I owe him everything. But man, how much more now that Jesus Christ has purchased our lives through his own blood, through his own sacrifice. And so Isaiah says, I'll go. 
You send me, God. You do whatever, ask me to do whatever, and I will go. If you are calling me to a life of love and family and children and community and peace and simplicity, I'll be faithful in that. Just call me. But you know what? If you're calling me to a life of hardship and sacrifice and a cross and a grave, I'll do that too. I'll do whatever you ask of me. I will go. And so we respond to the glory of God and the atoning grace of Jesus Christ with faith and repentance. That's the beginning of our response to it. That's the beginning of our going. And then in the acknowledgement of our sins and trusting in Jesus, then we obey God by continuing in obedience. We obey his word. We obey his will. We are called to love our neighbor. We are called to tell the world the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we obey. We answer the call to do those things. That's the gospel, okay? Um, sometimes you hear the gospel enunciated. God, man, Christ, response. That's an easy little way of remembering the gospel message in our heads. God, man, Christ, response. And that's exactly what we've seen in the passage in Isaiah. And it's the way our services are ordered. And the reason is, again, not just because we want our service to be gospel-shaped, but because we want our lives to be gospel-shaped. Every single day, we want everything about us to work in some way as a function of God, man, Christ response. God, the holy and just creator. Man, the sinful rebels uh, deserving of judgment. Jesus Christ, the perfect atoning savior. And now the response, who shall I, who shall I send? Who will go for us? Send me. I'll respond, Jesus. I'll respond in faith. I'll respond in repentance. And then I will live a life obedient to your kingdom. The gospel has to be the center of our lives in everything. And often we don't treat it that way. We treat it as the entry point to the faith, right? We treat it as the thing we believe at the beginning and then we move on to other things. We don't have to worry about the gospel anymore. That's the, that's the gate. But the tr- reality is, is it's not just the gate. It's the road beyond. The gospel is the climax of the biblical narrative, but it is also the key to understanding all the rest of it. We never move on from the gospel. We only move into deeper understandings of the way the truth of the gospel applies to every single aspect of our lives. And here's the thing, and I'll I'll confess this to you. I fear sometimes that my preaching does not emphasize the gospel enough, okay? Because the reality is, is as it makes sense in our service, we're at the point of saying, The sermon comes into the service where? At the point where we're saying, here I am, send me. What do you want me to do, God? How would you call me to live now that I've received the salvation of Jesus Christ? And so what happens a lot of times is our sermons, the sermons I preach often end up having a focus that is more of, hey, what am I supposed to do now, God, that I am saved? Okay. Now, not always, because sometimes, in all honesty, I'm not preaching. I'm preaching what I think is in the text. And so if the text happens to be particularly gospel related, then that's what I'm going to preach to you. Okay. But oftentimes it's not particularly gospel related. It's, it seems to be pointing towards what it looks like to be faithful for someone who has already believed the gospel. But here's the deal in every, every message that, that, that I preach, man, the gospel is underlying all of it. Okay. The gospel is the foundation. 
of those things. And another thing, that's the reason or part of the reason why we do the Lord's Supper every week. There, most churches don't do it every week, right? And I don't think if you don't do it every week, you're necessarily being unfaithful to the scriptures or something like that. But part of the reason we do the God, uh, do the Lord's Supper every week is because even if I don't get the gospel across to you in the sermon, I pray that the Lord's Supper will have given you a gospel message, okay? That you'll have seen the gospel, that you'll, you'll have seen the atoning work of Jesus, at least in the symbolism of the Lord's Supper, even if I don't do a great job of reminding about it, or, or, or if I do a, if I move past it accidentally in my sermon. But here's the deal. I pray that we would be gospel people. Our church has been here for five years, and I pray that we have been gospel people through the whole time. I pray that as God blesses, we will continue to be gospel people. That we will remain gospel people. That when we share with our friends, when we invite people, when we connect with people, when we serve people, that the gospel will be at the at the foundation and the gospel will be the thing that is working through every aspect of our lives. So what I want to do is go to the Lord in prayer. And again, maybe this would just be a great time. We've already done that, but to continue to thank God for his faithfulness and ask him that we would be faithful as well, that we would be gospel people. And then in everything we do, the gospel would be up front and in the center. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again, we, we can do nothing but exalt you, um, and acknowledge your goodness and glory. Um, God, we have done, um, God, we have done nothing that would warrant your blessing on us. God, even in our faithfulness, it is mingled with sin. Even in our obedience, it is, it is mingled with self-interest. God, everything that we do, um, falls short of the standard that you've set by your own character. And yet because of your goodness and because of your grace, God, you have poured out blessing on our congregation. God, you have poured out blessing in our lives. That is not to say that we have not um, gone through difficult things, both as a congregation and as individuals. God, we have weathered storms and broken relationships. God, we have um, lost loved ones, um, God, you have brought all of us uh, on a journey over the course of the last five years, and yet you have been faithful in all those things. God, you have ministered to our hearts. You have ministered to these people, um, and that you have led us every step of the way and continue to do so. Father, we ask um, that we would be an embassy, that we would be a beacon of the gospel in Blunt County. Father, we know and we hope and we pray that we are not the only um, beacon of the gospel here. We pray that there would be um, many more, um, that every church in our community uh, would be a beacon of the gospel. And yet, um, we know that it is easy to, to lose sight of your gospel um, and become enamored with the things of the world. Father, help us to never do that. Help us to not do that in our own personal lives. Help us not to do that in the witness that we have to other people. And God, help us not to do that in terms of the ministry and the preaching and the teaching of this church. 
we thank you for your grace. We thank you for um, your uh, provisional mercy in our lives. We ask that you would continue to do so. In Jesus' name, amen. We send some pleasant song. tonight in worship. Um, excited about um, our our fifth anniversary. Um, it's a cool. It's a cool um, uh, landmark, right? It's a cool milestone. Um, again, man, I, I know guys in in uh, ministry who have planted churches in the last five years, and their churches don't exist anymore um, because because of various things. Um, I've known guys that were in churches that. Uh, had been around a lot longer than five years and did not weather the storms um, of the last few years. And so um, I believe that's a testament to um, God working in our midst and unifying us and and uh, blessing our congregation. So um, love you guys. Um, glad to be your pastor um, and pray that God blesses us for five years and 10 years and 
as long as he'll give us. So, um, reminder, T-shirts. Um, if you if you want one of the new T-shirts, the difference between the uh, the old one and the new one is it's going to have the date established um, underneath it. So it'll say the little logo, Pleasant Grove of College Street, but it'll say established 2017 under it. Um, even if you don't have cash to pay for it tonight, go ahead. And if you want one, put your size order in. That way we can know what we need to order and go ahead and get that process rolling. And you can bring cash next week or, or whatever. Cool. Uh, we've also got our books back there. If you needed a book for the book study, which starts next week. So we'll be doing chapter one. You can go ahead and get one of those. They're $15. You can pay cash or check on those. Um, but cash would be helpful on the t-shirts. Cool. Um, that's all I got. Hope you have a great week. Hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. See you next week.